Welcome to a podcast on fire on the story of Wu Viet. Chiang Fat appears in one of his first acclaimed dramatic roles for emerging director An Hoi. She explored Vietnamese refugees on TV, and that exploration is transferred to the big screen uh, in the form of this film from 1981. And my name is Ken B, and uh, with me is, the, as I like to say, the translator of all the, film, of all the films you like, but also the co-host of the East Screen, West Screen podcast and uh, professional uh, awards blogger, damn it, Kevin Ma. Hello, buddy. Hey there, Ken. How is everyone doing? It's uh, going very well uh, over here, and uh, you you you're staying busy. We just passed uh, the uh, the high point of Hong Kong awards uh, season. You were there uh, at the front lines, blogging for us uh, lowly Westerners who can't uh, get access to uh, the TV broadcast uh, or understand the TV broadcast. So your uh, live blogging was uh, quite uh, entertaining to um, to follow. As a matter of fact, uh, that was cool. You do it yearly, of course, and for a variety of other awards shows at the very least the taiwanese one right the golden horse yes so uh so your your website is very much uh, alive your asia in uh, cinema so uh, was it a uh, uh you, you 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 know the industry boss of course so was uh, the uh, outcome the expected outcome based on uh, the bus uh, surrounding the various films raging fire or um drifting and uh, the various other films well i don't know really how people were voting because i you know, I don't know enough voters to ask. I had a friend who who asked me for some advice during the nomination phrase, uh, the phase. But as far as I know, that friend did not vote for Raging Fire or did not nominate Raging Fire for best film. But that was just a very early phase in the in the voting. So, but then I I think lots of people were expecting either Zero to Hero, which um, represented Hong Kong at the the Oscars uh, race for Best Foreign Film. So at least there's some industry support there because it, it is decided by sort of committee people in, in industry. Although they tend to be older people, um, the sort of the older elders, supposedly. So they only represent the younger people's taste. I know that some netizens were, were uh, rooting for Drifting, the social drama starring Francis Ng uh, and directed by Jun Lee. Of course, I worked on Anita, so... I, I can't be really biased or unbiased about um, Anita's award chances. Of course, I would like Anita to win as many awards as possible. They did rather, but that film did rather well in the end, though. It did. It won the most award number of awards. It won five awards, and um, but it, the, best, the sort of biggest award it won was Best Supporting Actress and Best New Actor. So, of course, Louise Wong, who played Anita Mui, won Best New Actor or Best New Performer, and um, Fish Liu, who plays um, her sister Anne Mui, ended up winning Best Supporting Actress uh, for that film, even though she was also uh, nominated for Limbo. So it was a really big year for Fish Liu. Zero to Hero, Drifting, uh, Anita, even, um, what was the fourth choice? Uh, I don't quite remember the fourth film that was... But either way, I think I think Raging Fire was sort of the last choice that people <laughs> expected at that point. Uh, sorry, Limbo was the fourth film I'm talking about. So Limbo has, has the support of um, sort of a lot of uh, younger industry people, Raging Fire, no one talked about Raging Fire. First of all, I mean, it lost at the box office to Zero to Hero. So that was a little bit of a a small kind of, oh, kind of like ouch moment there already because it lost at the box office to Zero to Hero, which was a much sort of a longer, it lasted longer in the long term. It had a longer, I, I hate to say, used to pun because the films were running, but yeah, it had the legs to, you know, beat Raging Fire at the box office in the end. 
but so so no one really talking about Raging Fire as a best picture um uh a contender. I mean, I think we all knew Betty Chan was gonna win the best director award because it's a as a posthumous award. It's sort of a, a tribute to him, and of course he's a great action director. And I think I think some of us are a little bit secretly a bit happy that that Raging Fire is I think I mentioned this on East Screen West Screen that we're glad that Benny Chan's last film is, is Raging Fire and that the film he managed to get the film done before he sadly passed away. Yeah, maybe you know I'm not I'm, I'm not being I'm not saying this in bad taste, but what would would Meow be his otherwise last film, or did he do something after Meow? No, yeah, Meow would have been his last film. If, I mean, it's if, uh, for, uh, for children, so it. there's nothing wrong with entertaining children, but I, I don't think that was critically acclaimed as such, and, and certainly did not have a grip on the Western action fans like Raging Fire did. Uh, it really played well. I, I haven't seen it personally, but, but I hear it's uh, it, it's a popular film for Donnie Yen fans and for, for Benny Chan fans, uh, at least over here in the West. Yeah, it's a good callback to... It's not exactly a a revival of that genre. It's a good callback to it. I don't think... I think it has its flaws. And the thing is, the sad thing is because um, Benny Chan died before post-production started, and we'll never sort of know what Benny Chan might have changed or how he would have envisioned the film uh, during post-production, or would he have done reshoots? Would he have adjusted things? We don't know. So that's just kind of the tragedy of it all. I mean, it's 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 hard to sort of boo a decision to to make it the best film of the night, but I gather it was a surprise, at least in your eyes, that Raging Fire would get best film in addition to best director. But uh, but 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 those were the votes. Yeah, those were, and and of course, I don't I don't know if this has anything thing to do with it, but uh, apparently the voting rate for this year's awards were um, the lowest in years, like fifty eight percent or something, which is a very low voter turnout for the um, for the Hong Kong Film Awards because it's such a small industry and lots of companies, uh, film companies, they they sort of want to have their people, the the qualified voters, to push the films they're pushing, and I think um, there's this sort of sense that you know the whole industry sort of wants to participate. But yeah, the voter turnout is is surprisingly low at fifty eight percent. So I don't know what this means or how this affected how people voted for best film. But I don't know. And and I have seen drifting yeah, because that that got um, local at least digital distribution over here, so, so I could watch that. And uh, I I was about to say I very much enjoyed it. it it's a tough film to watch, but certainly Francis uh, getting a nomination was. Uh, was uh, well deserved and um... unfortunately i think francis has gotten um like six or seven nominations for best actor and he still hasn't won and unfortunately he ran into patrick say who who you know you know hong kong hong kong film awards has sort of a history of um i don't want to say hierarchy but i think there is this sense that a certain actors when they reach a certain number of nominations the voting body or the, the people at large that the, the you know the industry at large so feels like okay, well, it's his turn to win. It's his, it's his time, right? Yeah, that was the case for Lao Ching Wan back in the day when he won for My Name Is Fame. He, he had a good run of nominations. Uh, going back to Selavi Moncherie, he was the loser of that night. Because and remember who he lost to? He lost to Anthony Wong, the <laughs> <laughs> Anton story. He, he, you know, he yeah. lost to a graphic exploitation film. And everyone else won that night, but uh, but eventually, I always remember My Name Is Fame seemed like the suitable film for Lao Ching Wan to win Best Actor uh, because the story reflected that as well. He was an acting teacher in that one, and uh, so it seemed like the stars aligned for that one. Even though maybe Selavi 
he he deserved one for that. Yeah, the thing the one the one that I remember the most is when Andy Lau finally won for the first time for Fighters Blues. Uh, didn't didn't he win for Running Out of Time first, or was that his second? Was it Running Out of Time or Fighters Blues? Oh my God, I seem to remember Running Out of Time. Okay, yeah, he was definitely an actor who sort of again sort of always a bridesmaid, never a, never the bride kind of thing. He waited for the longest time. He lost quite a few times, and then I remember that he finally won. He had the um, he had that dyed blonde hair from one of the album covers and you know yeah. he finally got up there and and that was a huge huge deal when indy laugh finally won um so so yeah it was kind of like well everyone i think mean, a lot of people were sympathetic to francis but then the thing is you know he ran against patrick say of all people who else you, you're not you're not gonna sit there like ron burgundy like no no <laughs> when, yeah. when, when you when something like that is announced so uh polite politely clap Exactly. Patrick Say is kind of, you know, he is a legend. No one's going to stand up and say, that man does not deserve this. You know, so, yeah. That, so, unfortunately, fans have to wait for another film. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll see. But the uh, working actor still has juice left in him. And um, and, and Drifting was uh, quite a performance um, that I very much enjoyed. Uh, he, he represented my, uh, when I got into Hong Kong cinema, sort of uh, a second time. So it was John Woo first, then I laid low for a couple of years, and then DVDs turned out to be very uh, cheap to buy from Hong Kong, late 90s, early 2000s. And then I sort of randomly stumbled upon like Bullets Over Summer, Juliet and Love. I was like, holy hell, who is this? Hello, big boy. You can act. You can certainly act. And uh, so uh, uh, he, he will always have this... Uh, so sort of special place in my fandom based on uh, based on that, and then I found out that uh, he makes so much that he makes a lot of turds as well, like any good Hong Kong actor. <laughs> you know, it can be very hammy. Um, and sp- speaking of that, uh, I, I mentioned drifting. It's over here. The Sondrum film is on Netflix over here. Is it Zero to Hero? Yeah, Zero to Hero. Yeah, because, because that, I think that's the name of an old Francis M film as well, where, where it, like, like a quirky superhero film. That he made in the nineties, so there you go, a little bit, little bit of connection. But but yeah, it's um, it might it might be global Netflix, but regardless, uh, uh, I did see a series of hero on um, on my local Netflix, so it's in the in the list. So uh, we'll uh, we'll see how it uh, plays out. Before we get going, I I needed to sort of ask someone who is an expert on all things uh, on all things uh, movies and language and titles. The title of this film is what it is, but um, uh, the story of uh, Wu Viet. But the character in the film, uh, as I listened to it and watched the subtitles, Giant Fat's character, his name seems to be pronounced Wu Yu. So, it's is a matter of fact the English title sort of an approximation of his name, or what do you think is the connection connection there being called Wu Yu, but the English title is what it is. Vietnamese names uh, all have sort of Chinese readings, apparently, Chinese characters for them. Just like sort of like Korean have uh, Korean names of Chinese characters. And um, those Chinese characters sometimes don't correspond with the Cantonese or the Chinese um, reading of it, for example. So Wu, Wu Vet, I believe that would be the Vietnamese way of pronouncing his name. But then Wu Yu, Wu Yu that would be... Um, so Vietnam, Vietnam, the Viet in Vietnam shares the same character as the Wu Vet. Wu Viet. But yeah, anyway, so in Cantonese it's Wu Yu, but then in, in uh, Vietnamese it will be Wu Viet. So I think that's, that's the difference. Yeah, but yeah, Vietnamese names all have uh, Chinese characters. Excellent. That, that, that's the thing that I um, 
uh, that I um, wasn't clear on. So we'll get into, into it very shortly. Our contact information I won't rattle off because I want to hand over to you. you. You can just imagine kind of that this show comes out comes out like in three or four months or so. So if you want to mention projects that are coming out or projects that are completed and out there in terms of what you worked on, you're happy to do so. Uh, you're welcome to do so and to plug stuff. Uh, and I'm just going to take a shot in the dog. In the dog. Are you at all involved in the uh, Waikafi Lao Ching Wan detective thingy? I did the English subtitles, yes. Excellent. Uh, what was the English title in the end? Because I've heard two English titles for it, I believe. It had multiple titles. Yeah, I started working on that film very, very early on when it was still called Cold Detective uh, back in 2018 when they were shooting. They Because they have a, a an American editor, David Richardson, on it. So what they do is that every time they shoot a scene, they send it to me and I have to translate for David Richardson. And then he would edit the scene based on the script that was written down. So so I was doing that back in 2018. So I've been on this film for a very long time. But um, yeah, I started out as co-detective and then it was something else. And then now at the end, um, it's called Detective versus Sleuths, which was um, I was told that marketing came up with this name or one of the, the, the people at Emperor Motion Pictures came up with that name. But um, coincidentally, when I was translating the script, there's this team of people who call themselves sort of the detective something god godly detective or whatever and but then you know i want to um di- distinguish two different groups of the, the the real police detective versus these these team of people so i use the term sleuths they're called the sleuths so ended up being detective versus sleuths that's the end yeah and 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 this is if i'm understanding correctly not a co-directing venture between johnny and Waikafa, this is uh, solo Waikafa, so so is it even Milky Way? For all intents and purposes, this is not a Milky Way production, for all intents and purposes. It is, I believe, credited under a company called Miracle Age and uh, Emperor Motion Pictures, of course. But all my communications uh, with post-production, it was all with uh, Milky Way staff, but I think they were sort of doing um, post-production assistance rather than, I think they were hired to do post-production rather than it being a Milky Way, but there's not a Milky Way production whatsoever. I don't know if it's uh, newly released or scheduled for release, but uh, certainly nothing on uh, on uh, digital or home video uh, as yet. But uh, that combo of uh, Lao Ching Wan and Waikafa is, is certainly something to look for, I think. Yeah, I, I've seen sort of so many sort of variations of it. I, so I, from starting from script, and I put the script together in full for the editor. And then I started watching, you know, several versions of the film. I've edited, I've, I've subbed, I think, two or three versions of it by now. So to start to do something for four years and then you know, on and off and then finally seeing it out in the world is, I think, it's a very interesting or special thing. I don't know how White Hot Fight feels, but, you know, me is a small potato and certainly feels like, wow, finally it's out in the world. Do you know if they finished the filming before COVID or they, this got disrupted, the filming schedule, because of COVID? Film, the film was finished by early 2019. It's finished very early. Um, but of course, you know, Mr. Y is a perfectionist and he likes to, first of all, I mean, he's already writing the script on set. He writes the script on set. So he does, he's a very sort of improvisational. Classic Hong Kong style. Right, the very Hong Kong style. And I'm sure that he's, I, I, from what I've heard is that he very much, he slowly sculpted the film really slowly and, and, and methodically. And he took a very, very long time to to sort of find a, a cut. And um, of course you have to deal with Chinese censorship because it is a co-production. So they had to send the film to censorship and Mr. Y kept sort of sculpting the film. They had to dub the film and so on and so forth. This post-production just ended up 
taking uh, a long time. And and of course, it was scheduled to open back in April in China. But then, of course, we had a six uh, new wave of infections here in Hong Kong and in mainland China. So um, it was further delayed to this summer, but it was supposed to come out earlier in the spring, actually. Well, uh, glad, glad to... Um to see a bow being tied around it uh, finally and uh, now you're probably so sick of it that you can't watch it for a good few years <laughs> incomplete it's know. funny because uh, it's funny because um septet a story of hong kong which is the omnibus film that's that now that's a milky way production officially i actually did septet i can't i can't place it i think i think i've done septet after i did um detective uh, or started on detective but that film also took a very long time to get to cinemas. Um, it premiered in Busan. Well, it was, it was in the sort of canned selection in 2020 when it didn't, when the festival didn't happen. It premiered in Busan in 2020, I think October. It opened the Hong Kong Film Festival in early 2021, and then it's finally coming out in theaters uh, officially in Hong Kong um, it, on July 28th. So uh, just a week after the White Coffee film. So. That was also a sort of a long journey, but that's you know that's how it is with COVID and sort of various different delays because of Chinese censorship or because they're they were trying to find a re- an ideal release date because you know when new waves pop up in China, films sort of come out late or they have to move the release date for commercial reasons or for whatever reasons. Um, so that's sort of the new normal. Just films just waiting forever to get released. I have three or four films that I've done getting releases in these couple of months. So it's it's all coming up very quickly. These actors are aging. Get it out. Get it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, may- maybe your situation is milder versus. Uh the long time it took for that um, Louis Ku, Lao Ching Wan uh, spectacle to come out. It seems like that was... Um, Warriors of Future. Yeah, Warriors of Future. A long journey to, to a screen and getting approval, as you talked of uh, on our on our Facebook group, that it wasn't, um, it wasn't uh, in their hands necessarily. This uh, wasn't due, due to the makers, it was to, uh, to, the, to the deciders, the decision people, right. I suppose. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but okay, that that's cool. A little, a little uh, nice grouping of a project. So uh, uh, why don't you um, uh, give the listeners a little uh, plug in terms of where they can find you on social media for such uh, for such updates? Right. So I do run a website that I use once in a while called Asia in Cinema. Um, I use that for mainly award live blogs now. So I don't know why I'm paying the fees to do this, but I still pay the fees to, to run the site. If it comes out in three or four months after the recording, so it should be near the Golden Horse Awards in Taiwan. Hopefully, by the time this comes out, you will be able to see that I've done a Golden Horse Live blog for the awards, which is now mainly Taiwanese films due to, you know, geopolitical, whatever. It's it's a very complicated situation. Um, so I'm on there. I am uh, on Twitter at, at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. Uh, yeah, that's about it. Um, otherwise, films, I mean, I have projects coming out all the time. You can, you can see, you can see that on my Twitter, yeah. And I don't know how snotty the uh, Golden Horse Awards are, but I've seen one Taiwanese film and I very much liked it, but it is a genre film. Uh, so I don't know if uh, they consider that uh, nominations were because I, I watched uh, The Sadness. Uh, and I don't know if that is uh, lo- uh, could be up for awards, but it is a it is a splatter film, so I don't know if uh, Golden Horse Awards even care for it. Yeah, that was insane. That was insane. Um, no, I think I'm, I'm sure it will be. I'm certain that some kind of technical award should be considered. Um, actually, the Taipei Film Awards, which is which is operate run by the Taipei Film Festival, did give it a special recognition. I think for the technical um, side of things, it is a very they should. It's an old school practical effects film mostly, oh, and I very much uh, enjoyed it. Uh, uh, based on that, that also got local distribution over here, so I've been able to see it. They're not um, 
uh, having to import something because yeah, uh, importing is an expensive endeavor still uh, for someone like me. Uh, but excellent. Uh, all those links will be in the show post. We'll uh, play a little bit of music from uh, our film at hand, the story of Vuviet, and uh, we'll be right back to do a little plot and some background uh, about uh, the film and its uh, director and its different versions, as it turns out. This uh, film exists in uh, at least two different uh, edits currently, so we'll, we'll break down a few things regarding that, so sit tight and we'll be right back. And welcome back, and the movie for this episode is The Mentioned Story of Wu Viet from 1981, and plot goes as follows, and uh, I might re- refer to Chai Fat's character as Wu Yu, as a matter of fact, so here we go. Wu Yu, played by Chai Fat, is a refugee from Vietnam that, um, after killing the Viet Cong for so long, seeks a way out via Hong Kong to then start anew in America. He meets up with social worker and longtime pen pal Lap Quan, played by Cora Miao, and uh, during one night in the refugee camp... Uh, Wu Yu kills off a, a Viet Cong special agent that has already murdered several people that came in on the boat from Vietnam. He's def- desperate now to get out promptly, being a criminal, and he and fellow Vietnam refugee Sum Ching, played by Sherry Chung, receive help with uh, obtaining forged passports uh, through a contact of his pen pal, Lap Quan. She is left behind, having gained nothing aside from an eventual thought of a hopeful future for the two uh, individuals but uh, their dreams are crushed uh, when Wu Yu and Sum Ching arrive in the Philippines and she is kidnapped and forced into prostitution so uh, An Hoi is um, going for, uh, for for the difficult uh, here for the, maybe the critical even we'll, we'll get to that in our review we use some of these episodes to sort of plug up gaps in our coverage of actors and directors uh, and, and I do like to summarize where they were in their career at that point uh, uh, what led up to a particular movie we're discussing, in this case, the story of Bouviet. And uh, for, um, for, for Anne Hoy and Chai, in fact, it was uh, certainly a little leap off uh, point and things would be uh, better. But we, we start with the film's director, Anne Hoy, who was making her third feature here. And she was born in 1947 to a Japanese mother and Chinese father. And these biographical details would be detailed in her 1990 film, Song of the Exile, the first Hong Kong laser disc I ever bought, as a matter of fact. Because I really wanted to see that film, uh, actually. Uh, An Hoi moved to Hong Kong at five, and uh, her parents were into classical literature, so young An Hoi immersed he- herself into that as well. And at college, she worked in the student theater group. Uh, so she was sometimes uh, on stage to fill out the stage as an extra, but she also worked behind the scenes, including designing posters. Uh, so that was alluring, but cinema was alluring too, uh, as an escape. Uh, you know, she she had a busy mind brewing there, busy mind of problem solving, being part of that theater group. So cinema was a nice escape from all of that. She subsequently earned a master's degree in English literature from the University of Hong Kong. She studied at the London Film School for two years, and upon returning to Hong Kong, she had the opportunity to work alongside legendary director King Hu as an assistant. I don't know specifically on what films we're talking of, but I have a feeling it's uh, either or maybe both, uh, The Valiant Ones and The Fate of Lee Khan, because those were Hong Kong productions uh, for uh, for Golden Harvest. 
and had Hong Kong actors, uh, normally King who worked in, in Taiwan or in uh, Korea, uh, post these two movies. So I have a feeling it might be uh, one of those two movies. Uh, uh, she transitioned into working for TVB, writing scripts, directing drama as well as documentaries. And uh, it, uh, it, uh, that work, that chunk of work, included six dramas for the Independent Commission Against Corruption an organization created to look into and clean up government misconduct, but she apparently ruffled feathers with uh, two of these pieces uh, to the degree that they were banned. Uh, but whether they were able to air and then were banned or banned fully, uh, I'm, I'm not too sure. I don't, I don't know how much is documented about uh, these uh, productions. They were never aired. They were, they were never aired, indeed. Okay. They were never aired. Yeah. Uh, but what was aired and what I've been able to see, and Westerners have been able to see, thanks to home video releases uh, subtitled in English uh, were her episodes uh, her uh, f- first or older episodes from um, from the uh, RTHK uh, uh, produced and hugely popular below the Lion Rock series uh, these were gathered in a Anhoi DVD box set of her episodes uh, from the 70s and one from the 90s that she did for the TV series uh, these are uh, sh- short films that still could run like 30-40 for- minutes maybe slightly longer those episodes were Road, Bridge and From Vietnam and uh, then in 1992 she returned to the Below the Lion Rock series with an episode uh, episode called Where You're Going and that is also in that set so that, that might be totally elusive right now but I bought it back in the day it was very lovely fully subtitled uh, episodes obviously subtitled extras as well because they had a little retrospective interview. And I also got the Alan Fong Below the Lion Rock box set back in the day. So they, they were absolutely lovely to see these uh, TV beginnings of uh, quite acclaimed uh, directors. And uh, mostly quality episodes as well. And, it, you know, her sort of summary, uh, um, uh, focus rather, seemed to be, you know, highlighting... Uh, uh, the backsides of uh, society, of uh, depicting the common men and uh, women and the historically crucial. Uh, but uh, she were able to do that. Apparently, RTHK gave filmmakers this freedom to make something genuine that came from their filmmaking hearts. So it wasn't this, it didn't seem like this strict, uh, like adhere to guidelines or you're out. But rather, they allowed for something quite uh, genuine. So uh, I might as well stop there. How how much have you uh, picked up on uh, uh, you know the importance of Below the Lion Rock? How much have you seen yourself uh, beyond those two DVD sets that I have a feeling you picked up some somewhere sometime back in the day? No, I actually do not own those sets. Um, I didn't get a chance to buy them when you know I didn't realize the importance of those uh, as documents of these directors, and I didn't really think of it. And you know, I wasn't so hot into sort of owning everything of by a filmmaker. I had no idea how rare it would be. I haven't seen that much. I remember seeing Boy from Vietnam, I think, during film school, because, of course, film school um, in Hong Kong, I did film school in Hong Kong, and we covered um, that period, you know, when the film unit of TVB, when they made some really avant-garde, um, some really forward-thinking um, shows, for example, Patrick Tam, of course, CID. I've seen those. Um, I think Anhui was the more sort of social realist director. So what she did was more um, realistic, uh, more uh, cinema verite. And yeah, that was a very important period, sort of the beginning of the Hong Kong new wave. So of course we studied that sort of period, uh, the history of that period, but I'm actually very behind on catching those films. And I'm hoping maybe one day 
I will be able to find those RTHK DVD just to be completed. Well, well, if you can't find a physical copy, I'm happy to share my uh, my because I do own a physical copy still. So um, so you don't uh, overpay on the second market or anything because uh, both the Allen both the Allen Fong set and Anhui set are worth it for um, to see that naturalism and that uh, that focus they were allowed to to have uh, uh, by RTHK. You mentioned from Vietnam and uh, that that kicked off that Vietnam trilogy as it's uh, as it's dubbed because it consisted of that TV short exploring uh, exploring Vietnam and uh, immigration refugees and that continued in two subsequent films one of which was the story of uh, Vu Viet but uh, it wasn't her first film her debut film was 1979's The Secret described as a psychological thriller horror film starring Sylvia Chang and uh, that film by Anne Hoi earned uh, two Taiwanese Golden Horse Awards for Best Cinematography and Editing and the film was also nominated for Best Picture Best Director it's not out of the gate uh, claim and the script was as well uh, if I'm not mistaken was The Secret one of those uh, Hong Kong Film Archive exclusive Blu-ray discs that they put out a few years ago Yes, because I walked down, I live quite close to the Hong Kong Film Archive, and to get one for, I think, for Paul Fox, my, my East Green West Green partner, I walked down to the Film Archive and asked for it at the counter, at the front counter, where I saw someone that I had previously worked, because I usually I used to write for the Hong Kong Film Archive, I do translation work for the Hong Kong Film Archive, so I, met, I saw someone I worked with, that I worked with um, via email, and I met them for the first time, so I remember this very, very clearly. I mean, that's a model that, that I guess that's simply what they do it's exclusively available from them you can't order it online all uh, willy-nilly like you uh, do with your uh, regular imports but uh, i suppose there's a thought behind that the cyber restrictions placed on them that they can't they can just sell it over the counter uh, or maybe it's a daft the decision to do that i don't know i think they just didn't make enough copies to be honest i think they just didn't order enough copies if i think they did sell it via um one of the websites buyoyo or yes asia i'm not sure but i think they did sell it online maybe yeah uh but it's cool that that was um uh, remastered uh, what followed was uh the spooky bunch from uh, 1980s it sounds like a hoot uh, i did see it uh, granted on an older print uh, so it, i couldn't quite grasp it i didn't vibe then with the sort of documentary style casual approach to somewhat dark supernatural events but there were some creepy sights and sounds though so uh, i do like to I, I would like to revisit it when i'm a little bit prepared for it it seemed um it seemed a little bit loose in its uh, approach, uh, not conventional as a, as a ghost story. So so we'll see. Uh, as writers have noted, Anne Hoy liked to follow displaced subjects, uh, those who uh, relocated. And the, the Vietnam trilogy, as we mentioned, was therefore about to be resumed with uh, 1981's The Story of Vu Viet. Uh, again, it starred Chiang Fat, Cora Miao, Sherry Chung, uh, Shaw Brothers veteran Lo Leet, and they had a script uh, penned by Alfred Chung, who would win a Hong Kong Film Award for his uh, work here. I believe that was uh, during the first Hong Kong Film Awards ceremony ever, the 1981 ceremony, right. uh, which only had like five categories or something like that, uh, like a really reduced um, category. Uh, I, I, I want to say like Alan Fong won that year, and like Kara Hoy won Best Actress for My Young Auntie. So it's uh, it's going back uh, back then. But uh, Alfred Chung wrote uh, this film and won an award for it. Uh, and uh, certainly Anne Hoy was involved because uh, it said that she had been gathering stories and perspectives herself uh, via interviews with uh, Vietnamese refugees. Uh, uh, telling stories about life in Vietnam before Saigon fell and uh, that was sort of her prep 
for uh, for her TV episode. So uh, I, f- I think that was good prep for the film as well. So those train of thought kind of expanded to feature length. Uh, and not only did it won that Hong Kong Film Award, but it was also apparently screened at the Cannes Film Festival. So Anne Hoy went uh, places uh, during her third feature as well. And uh, further writing uh, hits upon facts that uh, Anne Hoy was making a rare political Hong Kong film and using the story to reflect on Hong Kong's handling of the refugee issues and its own uncertain future. So there's something to subtext for for different uh, for different people, uh, for for locals and uh, for for Westerners. So. Uh, moving on to Chai Fat, uh, Anne Hoy also gave a very young Chai Fat an early chance to showcase his uh, drama skills. He was a household name though. But through a TV series mainly, uh, The Bund, uh, also starring uh, Ray Loy. But his uh, movie career was uh, quite uh, shaky and was going to be shaky for a number of years uh, uh, post the film we're talking of. Uh, his uh, contract initially started under Goldig Films, uh, making appear- appearances in Luck Lust Affairs such as Hot Blood and Massage Girls. Like, why wouldn't you want to watch that film? <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, he remained sort of box office poison for a few more years, but. Uh, as for performances backed by a little bit of substance at the script stage, it's, it starts here. He became award winner prior to A Better Tomorrow, of course, uh, winning awards for uh, a movie like Hong Kong 1941. But still, he, his breakout um, was about five or six years uh, into the future. But uh, he made the further films with Anne Hoy, Love in a Fallen City, made at Shaw Brothers. Uh, he made uh, two films with Stanley Kwan, Women. He, and Stanley was actually an assistant director on the story of Vuviet. And uh, he also made uh, the same years, A Better Tomorrow, Love Unto Waste with um, uh, with Stanley Kwan. Uh, and again, Hong Kong 1941, which is uh, from 1984, uh, earned him a Best Actor Award at the Taiwanese Golden Horse Awards. But uh, but yeah, uh, audiences were not quite ready to embrace him. And when they did, he became the hardest working actor in Hong Kong, essentially. Uh, it's a it's a miracle he didn't, uh, he didn't burn himself out, I suppose. So. The home video life of the story of Vuviet, uh, this is the last sort of section before we get to the film review, has been somewhat complicated and it turns out it still is, even in the era of Blu-ray. The Laserdisc by Winson was, and I think still is, but uh, that's because I'm, I'm me. I, think, I still think it's a quality presentation. It was, it was letterboxed and subtitled, so that'll do me. The subsequent VCD and DVD by Pearl City had no English subtitles, so that was out of the question to watch for me. And uh, the Japanese DVD release didn't have uh, subtitles either. The US DVD by Beverly Wilshire released as, this is a doozy, God of Killers. <laughs> that was a company, Dem and Xenon, or Xenon. They, they, they had a little run of Chow Yun Fat exploitation going on there. They released movies like, um, retitled like old movies to, to like Hong Kong Corruptor and uh, things like that. You know, just easy pieces of exploitation and put it out on VHS. That'll do. So th- this was part of that run. So, But that print was a murky, murky mess where you couldn't even see the subtitles on your TV. They dropped below frame so frequently. So I had to watch that on my on my computer TV because the overscan wasn't uh, present on, on my on my computer. So I, I was able to watch it, but it's an awful way to watch the film. That's all I had until I found the, the Laserdisc. But the film did make its Blu-ray debut in France and later Hong Kong as well. And here's the rap. Here's the problem. In Hong Kong, it had about six minutes of scenes compared to the Laserdisc and the French Blu-ray um, missing, removed. 
as prior home video versions um, editions uh, I, I encountered as they didn't have a Mandarin track and this blue did it seems that this version is cut to fit the Mandarin track and that results in some, in some unfortunate omissions including details of making fake passports um, the sort of money making business surrounding that is trimmed or gone there's a scene in the Philippines where the characters see a transvestite sitting down on the pavement singing, and singing about longing for someone. The stage show The Beauty and the Dwarf is cut short um, and a couple of instances of violence is, uh, is gone, including two executions and Chai Fat shoving a toothbrush through the mouth of a character towards the end. I want to throw it to you. Do, do you think there is a case here for these omissions would be sensitive on another market, whether Taiwanese or mainland market considering that uh, it's um it, it it's not just violent content it's uh, it's uh, sort of criminal content that's also missing so what is your theory here is this a matter of fact a version uh, with, with an audio track that's meant for another market as a matter of fact yeah no i mean it would be silly to think that you know a film got trimmed to uh, fit in a certain audio track i don't think i think we're overestimating the the work that Hong Kong distributors are willing to put in uh, on a film when they <laughs> okay. put it on disc. Fair enough. <laughs> Let's face it. I mean, because I've been buying those Golden Harvest films, the Golden Harvest films that were coming out on Blu-ray, and yeah, they're not doing anything. Please, yeah. Um, no, I from my my theory is that because the opening credits of the Blu-ray, the Hong Kong Blu-ray version or the newest version, it's uh, credited to a company called Star Alliance, uh, and it's is a Chinese-based company. It's a Beijing-based company, so. What I think, I think that the only print that they had on hand that they could release because Pro City went down and as is the case with, you know, Hong Kong films, you know, rights sort of just get lost in the ether. But the print holder, Star Alliance, probably had a legal mainland Chinese um, censor past version on hand. Um, So they might have trimmed the Cantonese track to fit the print that they have. That's the print they had on hand, and that's the print they released. So, as far as I know, because I have compared um, some of the cuts, so thanks to thanks to you, Ken, uh, for sending me both for both versions, um, the cuts that they made, you know, from the drowning of the baby and to um, you know the phony um, passports and and the violence, it seems to make sense that this would be uh, a version that is cut for the edited for the mainland market i'm sure that on um legal streaming websites it might this film might exist on legal streaming websites in china i haven't had a chance to check but this seems like it's safe enough for a um for mainland chinese audience it certainly um sounds plausible and unfortunately um it um it robs the film of uh, of some of its impact because uh, now logic seems to be thrown out the window uh, these are hard edits to do without throwing like logic out of the window and now uh, like what was that about why is there anything else here uh, these characters just walk towards a room and nothing happens uh, and as a matter of fact what happens in that room is a violent execution you know it's, it's very trimmed uh, it's very uh, choppy all of a sudden yeah i mean for example even in the beginning when you see a uh, core meow's character meet charm fat because the, the portion they cut on the boat has Charon Fat's voiceover mm-hmm. telling the audience that they've been pen pals since I think Charon Fat's character was in middle school. So by the time they meet, we have no idea why they know each other. Why were they writing to each other? Um, why are they sort of awkwardly kind of romantic but not? We have no idea until like 25 minutes into the film when it's reiterated that, oh yeah, Cormier was actually his pen pal. 
we had no idea what the relationship is. It's very weird. Yeah, very much. So if you want, we'll, we'll summarize it very quickly at the end. But uh, but yeah, if you don't need English subtitles, you uh, and and if you are a free uh, region, a region all in terms of your Blu-ray usage, the French Blu-ray is the full uncut version. So they weren't handed and uh, so so to say forced to use the cut version. Uh, so the Hong Kong Blu-ray is uh, is the cut, and the French Blu-ray is. Uh, is uh, the full, uh, full version. Thank God for being a silly little nerd and collecting laser discs, I suppose. <laughs> so there we are. Uh, okay, let's transition into the review. And uh, it, uh, I've, I've seen it before and I've, I've liked it before. I, I did notice this time around, especially compared to both people, which I think is a better film. This is a little bit, uh, little bit rough. Uh, it's uh, I, I, I can't fully pick up the the social commentary, of course, but there, there is a there is a downbeat and and uh, bleak story here using sort of lo-fi means to make it. It's not a high-budget films, but but I think throughout the, it is fairly affecting this downbeat theme of bleak futures and Chayanne's first sort of acclaimed dramatic performance. I say acclaimed. I mean it's sort of maybe. Acclaimed uh, in the wake of uh, in the wake of its release, it might not have gotten any uh, traction back then. But uh, I, I I think it's neat to see uh, a young Chang but uh, log his first uh, sort of dramatic performance, and uh, I do think it's uh, it's it's an affecting story that w- where Anhoy doesn't push or ma- manipulate us as such, which might be its downfall. The film, as a matter of fact, because there's no it's very natural, it's very straight faced, it's very matter of fact. There's no huge music cues signaling that uh, things are shocking now. Things are uh, tear jerky now. Anything is very straight faced uh, as made, and and I still find it to be uh, an an affecting story that that might connect to a thing I'm going to talk of in a little bit. That I'm quite enamored with this Hong Kong new wave. The stuff I've been able to see from it, I am very fascinated with this uh, this period of uh, these emerging filmmakers. So it's it's still an affecting film. A little bit rough, a little bit sloppy towards the end as well as they try to wrap up the story. So let me throw it to you for a, for a brief opinion. I believe this was your first viewing, as a matter of fact. It is my first viewing. And in fact, um, you know, I'm not sometimes, I'm not really complete in terms of anyway because it's sometimes very difficult to catch some of her films. So this one was something that, or a film that I hadn't really had a chance to pick up um, or watch. So I had no idea what to expect. I didn't read any of the plot description i thought it would be another film like both people then then next thing you know i open and you know i'm watching you know people getting killed and charon fat being this sort of uh, um uh john wick kind of character <laughs> you know killing secret agents left and right and shooting people and then next thing you know you have this thing that's ripped out of godfather you know and i'm kind of like this is a genre film you know and i shouldn't be surprised because anyway is kind of a journeyman director in the sense that yeah, she does, you know, realist films once in a while. She does character drama, especially later in her uh, career. But, you know, at certain times, she really is a journeyman director who jumped across all kinds of genres. Yeah, martial arts, horror. Yeah, exactly. Horror. Um, yeah, like, like, you know, The Secret is a horror film. It's a, it's a thriller. It's kind of funny that we sort of view Enhui as this sort of Hong Kong equivalent of Jane Campion or something. Of course, Jane Campion has some mystery films, but nothing uh, in terms of Enhui's versatility in terms of what Enhui's done horror and, and and now action films. So I was quite surprised by what I saw. I had no idea it would be an action film. It's a quite straightforward um, sort of man on the run type of film. 
especially when he gets to the Philippines and it becomes sort of you know throwing romance of Cherry Chung in there. And you know, poor core meow, that's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting sort of triangle romance. I was sort of half pleasantly surprised by having my expectations uh sort of thwarted um the moment that Charon Fat is um, you know, shoving a nail through a dude's head. <laughs> that was that sort of awesome material throughout the window. We're, we're not uh, making uh, little uh, straight-faced uh, films about uh, people living in Hong Kong and living their lives anymore. Like, <laughs> this right, is, right, uh, right. So the so way you were talking about how it's uh, political, I mean, I suppose the thing is I don't see it as a political film either. I see it uh, these days. I see it a very genre film. It's a very man to one kind of film. But I think what happened is that not many mainstream, mainstream films or mainstream um, productions it tackled the issue of the Vietnamese refugees, but even though it was very close to home, I mean, at least I grew up in Hong Kong in the you know through the mid eighties and up to the early nineties, and the the Vietnamese refugee camp actually was quite close to my neighborhood, so it was very much a reality in my life. But yeah, it's not really quite tackled. You, you know, you know, I see it more as she has her research she she did from Vietnam, and going into this, it seems like it fueled the the script in terms of. Crafting this the partly action thriller drive to the film, but no, she was not hell bent on making this stock through and through social commentary. So it was more like she had her subjects rather than making a full on comment on on the government and on the current situation because because that it, because of it veers into genre elements. So so, so it seems so it seems like less uh, I want to say less serious, but uh, she she wasn't as hell bent on making this. Um, full-on statement or anything yeah the thing is enhui has i've interviewed enhui before i've, I've talked to enhui before i mean we're not like friends or anything i i would hate to no no i met her I, it was a long interview and and you know she, it was i think when she was making night in fog and night in fog you know that film is based on a real murder um in in a, a quite controversial case and you think that she want to say something with that film in fact the fact that it was a companion film with the other Tin Shui film, I forgot the the name of it already. I'm sorry, but um, but yeah, the fact that it's a comparison piece to a film that's very different, but about the same neighborhood, you think that she has something to say about it? But she said very clearly that I am not interested in making or giving social commentary. I'm just showing life as is, or I just show uh, something or incident that happens as is. I'm not interested in giving my message or giving my point of view about. And that's something that she's been saying for the last couple of decades. It, it, it certainly has led to affecting material using the political content, whether she's making a statement or not. Because I, I, I think both people is sort of a combination of uh, like d- these experiences making uh, movies about uh, the Vietnamese subjects, where it really clicked for me because it's uh, it's a well made film, it's an affecting film, it's a hard film to watch at times, and I guess. Uh, just theorizing that if Criterion was sort of weighing, are we going to go for Vuviet or both people? I, I will, will go for both people because it feels like the more complete film. And uh, and and yes, uh, this year or last year, uh, both people got into the Criterion collection. So I have a feeling that they're, they're not going to look for a story of uh, Vuviet, but uh, there's more, uh, there's a better polish, I think, in uh, both people and, and certainly more stock imagery. Oh, yeah, it's easy to see why people would choose both people over Bouvet. Bouvet is sort of like, uh, I mean, Alfred Chen's script, which was uh, ended up being, uh, I think, tweaked by Chu Kanjian, that 
script is um, more of a genre film, and it's never going to please the sort of uh, the art house narrative of Enhui. And the idea that Enhui is a, is a journeyman director, I think, sort of doesn't really fit with a lot of so overseas festivals or the way that art house sees Enhui. But yeah, so that film, I don't, I don't think uh, Story of Wuve is ever going to get a recognition, I think, from uh, that crowd. But, but but as I said, I often find myself drawn to this Hong Kong new wave of the early 80s where, where these mentioned voices like Anne Hoy, uh, Choi Ak, uh, Alan Fong, Patrick Tam emerged. And and it's important to to remember that they made genre pictures like horror, like wuxia. Choi Ak's film was a wuxia, uh, The Butterfly Murders. But but I often come back to the appeal, the, the appeal of uh, the, the static, the gritty, the, the natural, sometimes the political, social, even angry mixtures within some of these uh, films by these makers. Not all the films. I mean, let's go back to Choi Hak, his second film, a cannibal kung fu comedy. <laughs> so uh, Hong Kong New Wave, uh, social realist? Nah, <laughs> no, I'm not, not yet anyway. Uh, but 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 I do find uh, the, these emerging voices and, and the type of films they made uh, and and the, and the breeding ground that this turned out to be uh, for uh, for some of the brightest Hong Kong cinema talent is really nice to see when you can see it. A lot of these Hong Kong UA films, uh, not all of them are um, are fully available. You, you can't pick them up and uh, stream them instantly or anything. Um, but, but but yeah, like, like a director like Alan Fong. I, I I'm not sure when he, when the situation in terms of his work being available to the masses is, is going to change because that, that 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 is currently dire at least in my eyes here. There is a restored version of I Ying floating out in Hong Kong. It played at the Hong Kong Film Festival last year. It it just had a screening I think or it has gotten to have a screening here locally. So my God, Criterion. I don't think you're listening to this, but I love Rouge. I'm very thankful both people is in the collection now. But please, please. Please, please put Ah Ying in the Criterion Collection. It is a real Hong Kong gem of a film. It is really, truly a lost classic of Hong Kong cinema that I think Hong- real Hong Kong film fans have sort of been lucky to get a, get a glimpse of when it gets a, a a rare beta cam screening once every few years. In 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 2022, a rare beta cam screening of a best yeah, picture yes, winner. I ha- I've seen I've seen the film on beta cam, so I know. So yes, please. Um, yeah, I, I, my God, there's a restored version out there. Please get a hold of Ying and put it out there, please. Some some of that early exploration of the Hong Kong New Wave is very fascinating to me. Whether they made uh, social realist movies or or not, I, I remember Choi Hak actually talking of um, a discussion he had with Anne Hoy at the time. Uh, when the label started to be applied to them that they're the Hong Kong New Wave and he was like what are we supposed to do here I mean we're kind of we're not making anything specialized we're not reinventing cinema we might be changing the game a little bit by shooting on location shooting in sync sound but we're, we're very traditional in our approach so I'm not sure what is expected out of us obviously they found their footing and their voice and and making widely different matters because Choi Hak obviously went into comedy special effects and Wuxia and as you talked about Anne Hoy went her own way so they, they obviously escaped that sort of uh, question mark they, they, they found their careers obviously but, but it's interesting to be that, that it gave us that perspective from being within it uh, when a tag has been applied to to a group of filmmakers and um, and yet they were conventional genres in a way if you remember Patrick Tam Yes, he made Nomad, but he also made The Sword, which is a wuxia. So it's not like we have this catalog of 50 social realist films from all of these guys. 
Oh, but Patrick Tam is, is sort of more influenced by French New Wave, you know, the sure. sort of expressionist cinema. And if you watch his shortened septet, he's very much still attached to that sort of expressionist type. He, he was always sort of uh, beyond labels or certain styles. I think he's very much in control. And at the same time, he's very much outside of any sort of restrained borders. So I think that's what, like you said, that's what makes the Hong Kong New Wave so exciting. It's not just artistically great cinema is the fact that you had so much uh, such a wide scope so much different styles in this sort of small city and some some people sometimes uh, argue that uh, this influence came from I, I i don't know if if alan fong and patrick were educated abroad but certainly an hoi and choi hak were and sometimes writing has suggested that this was an influence that uh, came into Hong Kong cinema because they got their education abroad and a few different perspectives on filmmaking, content, and what have you. I'm, I'm not too sure if that holds water, that argument, but uh, it certainly has been suggested that uh, that's what some of these makers brought. I think the fact that abroad, I used to think that abroad meant something or or meant or, or has significance on their films, but I think more significantly, this is the first sort of generation of directors that went to university that were like you know um intellectuals that were educated it's sort of similar to this generation of new directors who are coming out of local film schools that they're educated in film that they didn't get their training on a film set rather they really did get their training in a classroom that they grew up learning film theory and and things like that and watching films uh, i think the hong kong new wave um although they might not have been studying film they did get their education they're very well educated they're you know so for example anhui is still a very if you watch the documentary um uh, keep rolling you see that anhui is still very much interested in literature she's fascinated by literature and that's you know that's why she studied literature when she was in in abroad so these are very much intellectuals and I think that's what truly affected sort of their passion for films rather than just being trained on the film set and making their way up as, you know, like like the way, you know, assistant directors and so on. You know, doing directing as sort of a execution because they're educated, they use um, cinema as an art form and to express, you know, things that are the- to be theoretical or something that's more abstract than the, you know, just a story at hand. And, and, and a final little note before we go into the story of Vuviette uh, on uh, Choi Hak, uh, because he, he spoke of uh, the Butterfly Murders on a uh, French DVD release, like a, like, like a piece focused solely on the making of that, which was fantastic. And one of the things he said, because I, I love hearing Choi Hak talk, because he describes himself as a sort of, uh, he, he can be an asshole when he directs. He can be horrible <laughs> to work with. But but he, he, he laughs about it. And uh, but, but what he spoke of in terms of Butterfly Murders that, he didn't have a fully formed thing going there. He was using his gut instinct. And I'm sure that flowed through some other aspects of his career. And that kind of made me infuriated because I want to be that talented. I also want to have gut instinct that results in butterfly murders, which I'm quite uh, fond of. I want to have gut instinct that uh, results in, I want to make uh, comedies, but I want to make special effects too. You know, it's it's this uh, it's it's this uh, talent I'm uh, I'm envious of, and that's why it's so funny to watch Choi Choi Hak in interviews that he he really I I don't think he ever speaks of at least not in English of uh, intellectualism of his films. It's just uh, he's kind of a goof, and uh, he's a nerd. 
he's a nerd who who read martial arts novels when he was a kid, you know, as opposed to reading, you know, textbooks. He read martial arts novels, you know, so he's very much a genre nerd. And it really came from that. Well, uh, butterfly murders came came from that, and also he found that butterflies quite eerie as creatures. So there you had the the horror aspect of uh, the butterfly murders. Um, anyway, let's move on a little bit to the story of Vuvietta. I uh, l- looking at it now, I, I was looking for it if it's too cynical for its own good, and I don't think it is cynical. It's uh, it's devoid of commentary. It's just this story. It's this uh, driving story of starting a new, starting a new somewhere else, landing somewhere else. Whether have whether you have to turn to crime or not, it's it's incredibly difficult to flee from uh, straining circumstances to somewhere where you. Uh, we don't know how it's going to go, literally, for lack of a better term. So going to America doesn't necessarily mean that everything will be solved for these characters. So this drive I do very much uh, attach to. And uh, it, it's it's sometimes tense and sometimes scary that uh, the money-making forces and the exploiting forces are out there too. And they're, they're going to screw over these characters um, uh, easily. And uh, they, so so the movie quite early on talks of uh, that uh, violence is around the corner and uh, these real looking deflated people on the boat coming into Hong Kong, deflated of energy, they're dirty and apparently some of them had died along the way. It's perhaps what I, the, the, the section of the film that feels a little bit new wave like, uh, very social, social realist and uh, very matter of fact, very much shooting on location, it's not manufactured, I mean you can just imagine that scene on the boat. That's a real boat. They had to go away from away from Hong Kong Harbor to make it look like they're going into Hong Kong, and to cram a film crew on there as well in these uh, chaotic waters. So uh, it, it's an effective setup. But also, she sets up this mystery that I don't think is fully explained. Either I'm stupid, or it's not fully explained why these special agents, these spies, are present somewhere and are taking out various people, including an old man. I think the old man said that he was a witness to what the Vicon agents did on the boat. So I, you know, obviously they were sent because these guys are escaping from the Vicon. Because this, uh, of course, these people are escaping Vietnam because of the Vicon, because the Vicon won the Vietnam War and they've taken over Vietnam. And so that resulted in a lot of refugees going to Hong Kong, which is quite close to uh, Vietnam in proximity. It's the closest place where they can find freedom or um, the easiest sort of stepping stone to elsewhere. So, of course, VCOM would send agents, um, sneak on these boats to sort of kill as many people as possible, I suppose, or perhaps um, enemy agents. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, the old man died because he was a witness to what the v- So the VCOM agents wanted to stay anonymous, obviously. But if the old man saw them, then he's a witness. So that's why they killed him. You know, does it ever feel like manufactured in terms of... Uh in terms of how it appears cinematically, with this quite straight-faced documentary style, and uh, is it any good or not by being this uh, natural and matter-of-fact and even gritty? Like, uh, is there any cinematic worth in that for you, or is it too low, but too low, low budget and too rough to sort of be acclaimed at this point? Actually, I didn't. I didn't find it very natural. I found it quite very much a low-budget sort of genre. Film. Of course, it's very cinematic, especially there's. A couple of scenes, for example, the scene where um, Cormel and, and Chan Fat character they meet through uh, with the of the with the fence in the middle, and the camera sort of pushes pulls back and it goes back in. There's certainly some very cinematic touches in the film. Yes, it is a bit uh, low key for an action film because Anhui doesn't do action films, but at its core, it is a man on the run film, and just because Anhui 
doesn't like you said doesn't do these sort of big action beats per se i think it is sort of her version of a man on the run action yeah i, I actually thought the the lack of manipulation in terms of uh exciting action music or uh, any melodramatic music whenever something sad happens was oddly uh, oddly effective uh, it's a tricky balancing act of course but uh, with it appearing so quiet at points uh, i thought uh, it was it was oddly i wouldn't say affecting it as well it didn't affect me emotionally but it was oddly alluring i think uh, combined with this sort of infatuation with the hong kong new wave as i talked of that uh, you know even when the old man is killed or even when china fat uh, puts a nail into one of the spices um head where when he um predicts a night uh, nightly attack she she doesn't um uh, she doesn't manipulate her audience that way which which uh, might be a failure in some audiences eyes that uh, there's stings missing here but but i thought it was uh, effective uh, as a matter of fact uh, for me i think this sort of strand of uh, the way that she captures these sort of well-worn genres i think it still carries uh, to this day if you watch uh, our time will come it in if made by any other director it would be a very typical sort of uh anti-japanese war drama or with a lot of action because it, it's about the gorillas in hong kong gorilla army but the way she makes it is still a very sort of seemingly ordinary uh bits in the very tape but actually more more calm and serene than you know one would expect from that genre how do you think the young chaiyanfar does here but but in his mid-20s at this point i think yeah no excellent i mean he's fine i don't think i think I, i've never seen a bad chaiyanfar performance oh let me show you some i have some <laughs> <laughs> the gold the gold dig days are filled with uh gems in that regard uh, do you want to see the film where he urinates on danny lee's face i have that film <laughs> Oh, I'm sure you know his. He's rough around the edges early days, but Charles has never been like a. How do I say it? Like Charles has never been an actor that's sort of gone beyond his range, but within his range, he's very likable, and he's a very much everyman quality. He's very charming, and he doesn't have to go beyond that. I don't think he has to stretch beyond that to be liked by audiences or for his character to be liked by audiences. And I think that's the case here. But like I said, unfortunately, his character is a bit of a douche in terms of handling his personal relationships you know his romantic relationships but otherwise um it's a very likable another very likable everyman charm fat performance um i'll be honest i did not recognize cherry chung she's very young here and i had no idea it was her until i saw the credit so i actually went back and sort of looked to make sure that oh my god that is cherry chung um she's good here she has a very sort of young energy she's very uh Let's say I, I, I'm convinced why Chan Fat's character would be attracted to her, although, although, although at the same time I feel very sorry for the core ma- core mouse. Character. Yeah, she she's. Uh, I mean, it's not spoiling anything because they do uh, are whisked off to well, was supposed to go to America in the end, but uh, are stuck in the Philippines, and Core Meow has to sort of realize that uh, her feelings have to be put aside and uh, her social worker instincts uh, have to kick in here to help these two people and um, she's going to be left behind uh, but we which are nicely low-key moments uh, she uh, she isn't uh, being forced or uh, even doing tv melodrama here which uh, I, I i like better when it's a little bit more reserved and and china fat is as well in his performance that that's sort of low energy demeanor and reserved delivery that he mostly has but he also has to, a soldier in him obviously works uh well for me because he's a character who has seen so much seen so much violence um, as he speaks of we never get a flashback to his uh, time in vietnam so 
it would make sense that uh, he's uh, a bit reserved, I think, uh, and uh, seen too much and uh, want to stop seeing violence, which obviously uh, doesn't happen. And uh, that that leads to a, a little bit uh, of uh, of uh, violence and even action. And, and this movie has enough action where you needed a uh, then emerging, but eventually, you know, superstar superstar director and action director uh, you needed a person like that on, on the film and um ching sudong is actually the action director here and uh you know so some of this stuff uh, requires uh, a stunt coordinator of, of note you know there's some of these close quarter struggle uh, struggles and uh, wrestling and kicking some gunplay and it's it's something i enjoy that um that there's immense value in having you know a martial artist and at, at he actually was an experienced choreographer, but he would come into his own in the 80s, working with uh, Choi Hakim, directing Duel to the Death. But it's really valuable, I think, to bring someone like Ching Sudong on here to uh, provide uh, these scenes with, uh, with with the with the roughness that uh, that they uh, they require. So it, it's a little uh, thing that uh, I like, and also uh, it's a tribute to Hong Kong action directors that uh, they don't need to do kung fu all the time, you know their expertise is needed in a variety of ways including on a movie like this even if uh, their workload versus a duel to the death with chinese ghost story obviously is way less on a movie like this but uh, i do feel that uh, his uh, contributions uh, really make a difference uh, uh, but the uh, but the contributions uh, they they don't turn the movie into an over-the-top action film though but the action scenes they're okay i mean like it's it's shot in a lower budget um it's anyway you know shooting the philippines so it's a strange country or you know it's a foreign country that she's not familiar with and um the budget's certainly limited so i don't have anything particular special to say i don't think they're particularly bad but i don't think they're particularly good either just based on what they were able to do but i think anyway just not an action director you know well it, it, it's good that you have access to uh persons like that for even a uh i was about to, uh, about to say minor piece of work what i mean by that uh, it's not as uh, there's not as much sequences required for you to to stage in a movie like this but it's really nice that you had uh, access to someone like um ching sudong and and it's no uh, there's no doubt right i mean i i haven't been to the philippines so i don't know but there, there's no doubt that they actually did shoot in in the philippines in your eyes or where what is your take on that they're certainly not in hong kong uh, i could deduce that no no they definitely shot in the philippines they definitely shot in the philippines in fact um i think uh enhui so i was reading up on alfred Chen's writing uh enhui actually took alfred Chen to philippines uh and he actually got to know a Phil- he lived to a state of filipino family and you know became close to them while he do to do to sort of research uh, about how to write those scenes. But unfortunately, Edward wasn't happy with the Philippines um, section uh, that Alfred Chen wrote and ended up bringing in Chu Kanjeng to strengthen that section. Um, but in the end, because Edward felt bad about doing that, Alfred Chen being, ended up being credited as the, as the main script writer and Chu Kanjeng ended up only being credited as a script consultant because I mean Chu Kanjeng is a veteran so by that point you know he's like I, he you know he doesn't have you know he's fine with it he's cool he's older you know he's cool and, and Alfred Chen needed the the, the sort of boost so that's what happened but yeah uh, apparently they, they shot on location in the Philippines it's quite obvious they use Filipino actors as well yeah for sure and uh, and I do like uh, that tra- transition into the Philippines where uh, the, the scene in the airport as silent as it is I, I do think that, that, that that's some of the stronger 
exciting, scary beats, as because there, there is a set system there. Uh, Chang Fat and Cherry Chung's character are brought there, and the plan is to to separate them. And all of a sudden, it happens because the the Philippines uh, crew there that the the Hong Kong contacts uh, have contact with, they uh, abduct girls and buy girls and put them put them to work into prostitution. And I think just seeing all of a sudden she's gone. Sherry Chung, I thought was effective and seeing Chang Fat sort of roam around the airport and then kicking into John Wick mode, as, as you said, because uh, he's uh, he, he's devoted to this girl that, you know, they, they barely met, but uh, I, I think it's fine in terms of uh, the motivation he has to the well-being of, of a girl, you know. It's not like, oh, yeah. well, well I I've just known her for five minutes, so good luck to her. La, 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 la. Like, he, he wouldn't do that, so uh, that's fine. But but I thought that was some of Anne Hoy's uh, stronger handling of that uh, of that tension. And as, as slowly, like, China Fat enters that belly of the beast that the Philippines uh, represents. Um, and uh, having to perform services before he's uh, even getting a minute chance to... Uh, to get out, uh, so, so I thought that transition was uh, was effective, and uh, it, it it doesn't feel like this stock token Hong Kong film that we're watching at that point. Uh, at that point, uh, uh, that's another thing I connect to with the new wave. That uh, so some of these movies just felt um, felt different, even though as we talked of, it, it's a genre film, but still, it's not uh, the twentieth in a long line of similar Hong Kong films at the time. Is my is my point. Right, but at the same time, she had done quite a few of the ICAC films, so she knows how to sort of handle these, uh, I suppose, because some of them are the crime, they're essentially crime dramas, the ICAC um, shows, or the, the short films, I suppose. Um, so, you know, she knows how to handle tension and things like that, um, because she's done crime before, um, I mean, crime genres before, but you could still see that it's not the most polished of films, um, you could imagine that it was probably shot in a rush uh, on a very limited budget, but um, at the same time, I think she used that silence to build tension. And yeah, it's it's not. Let's just say I'll put it this way: um, if you just show this film to someone and you ask them to name the director, and I think they would be Enhui would not be on top of that list. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's not very obviously. Yeah, it's not obvious Enhui film. I would say, yeah. uh, not that Enhui has a sort of of quote unquote obvious style, but you could see that in her later films, from the Golden Era to Our Time Will Come, to uh, Love After Love. Of course, if we show Eileen Chang adaptation uh, Hong Kong film that's uh, adapted to Eileen Chang, it's very likely that Enhui might have done it because she has a big thing for Eileen Chang. This film, the the style is almost invisible. I would almost say sure, it's a bit yeah. invisible like i said it's a very journeyman kind of film um it's not exactly fit into an Otaire theory except if you say of course other than the fact that it fits into the vietnam trilogy it's not very much an Otaire film because you can't find sort of a common um stylistic element between the boy from vietnam to this one to both people yeah, yeah. I mean, as similar, in, no, not similar, as as part of the trilogy, it seemed like, well, these movies connect stylistically. But I don't know, but both people all felt a little bit uh, bigger and more slick. And I don't mean slick in the shallow way. It just felt uh, better produced and uh, more hard-hitting and shocking because of it. Um, 
certainly didn't pull in the punches either. So out of those three, I think that there, there is that progression that you can definitely see from the TV to the first film to the second film in terms of the trilogy. Um, so, so Oh, certainly you see sort of confidence, more confidence behind the camera, obviously. Yeah. And uh, because both people, you know, it was banked by a left-wing film company. So there's that extra, I guess there's more money because... Uh, Chan Fat wasn't a huge. In fact, there's sort of a side story is that Chan Fat was supposed to appear. He was still signed to TVB at the time. He wanted to do Wuvet more, um, but according to his contract, he cannot prioritize a film over a TVB series. But in the end, I think Pearl Pictures insisted on Chan Fat doing it, and Chan Fat insisted on doing it instead of a TVB series. And Teddy Robin had to set in the middle and and settle things between TVB and Charon Fat apparently. But that's sort of a side news. But yeah, at the time, it's not a very, you know, polished production. For, for both people, by the way, the story I heard was that Charon Fat uh, ultimately backed out because uh, it was filmed in um, filmed in China. Hainan. Yeah. Hainan, yes. And uh, and he and and he was uh, and he would have uh, received a ban from working in Taiwan, which was a decision he wasn't uh, willing to make at that point. To uh, to have a band um, uh, working in Taiwan, so uh, yeah, and was... ironically, um, ironic, many people, not including Anhui, by the way, many people thought that both people was about mainland China more than Vietnam, and um, I think even Anhui was caught quite aback by this claim because she said, "I wasn't trying to make a film about mainland China; I just want to make a film about Vietnam." So this tells you what I'm the one who makes the Vietnam trilogy. Hello. <laughs> Yeah, it's a Vietnam trilogy. I'm not making about China. It's a film of Vietnam. So this is what I meant about, you know, Anhui not being a filmmaker who wanted to push um, certain, you know, messages or agendas into her film. She just sort of likes to portray things as is. And and uh, I th- think there might be a reason I've been able to connect to several of her films that uh, they're, they're not as complex as they might seem going in. Uh, the stories are the stories and uh, the subtext even if it is there, I've been able to get a whole lot of out of these uh, personal and uh, and local stories, um, as well as the genre films that she's made uh, uh, along the way. So a movie like Song of the Exile, very personal story and uh, very uh, kind of low key as well. Not not terribly um, emotionally manipulative, but um, it's it's easy to 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 absorb that to absorb that. Um, personal biographical uh, story and then um, w- without any violence or cynicism obviously that that's out of that film uh, some other scattered notes uh, I, I do appreciate uh, an actor like Lolit being in here and you know uh, Shaw Brothers is uh, they were still active but uh, they they were quite uh, rapidly declining in the 80s so Lolit was uh, coming out of Shaw Brothers he appears as this very solid character actor and uh, veteran and experienced and uh, charismatic enough for for a role that that, that reflects uh, or runs parallel in a way with uh, Chiang Fat's Wu Yu role because he he also came in from Hong Kong but he stayed when he didn't need to stay and perhaps that is uh, because uh, he weighed his options and perhaps working in the crime world is a safer bet versus going to wherever he wanted to go originally as a young man, whether to America or, or elsewhere. So, uh, but, you know, Lolit was someone who appeared in so many movies at Shaw Brothers, it was hard to connect to each and every role 
because they didn't really feel different. Uh, he had his iconic roles, of course, but coming out of Shaw Brothers, going into modern films, reveals that all that experience working at, at Shaw Brothers and living in the Shaw Brothers dorms and making, 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 it turned out that you're a pretty solid uh, performer to have in a supporting role. And certainly not awkward being out of Kung Fu, being out of Wuxia, or being out of Long White Beard, <laughs> you know, when he played Pai Mei, or anything like that. So I think it's nice to have characters like Lolit and as as the 80s rolled on and the 90s uh, uh, and the 90s entered you know that was still true to have someone like Lolit come in for for your film whether in Miracles or yeah, he's in Queen of Temple Street I think the Lawrence Lau film and he, he turned out to be really really solid to have around uh, and they grew in experience and in, in respect certainly in, in my eyes uh, so it, it's nice to have even if the role is uh, a supporting one in this one, so it's a it's a it's a little bit of a trip to um to to see um to see the Shaw Brothers plays outside of it. It, it, it. It's quite funny. Uh, uh, when uh, speaking of Shaw Brothers plays, when when I got familiar with uh, the players of A Better Tomorrow uh, back in the day, watching it, and the writing suggested that oh, T Long was on this down uh, down award slide, and uh, his career got uh, resurrected, but. He he was working up until Shaw Brothers closed, man. <laughs> Someone like T Long, he had not been. He was employable all throughout the eighties, man. And uh, right. so, so sometimes uh, you know that that story gets a little muddled in terms of uh, these uh, players that John Woo saved, you know. And uh, certainly An Hoi wasn't uh, the one that saved Law Lee's career or anything. But it's it's nice <laughs> to but, but it's nice to have. Uh, I don't know if you're a big fan of the of the Shaw Brothers movies or not, but uh, you certainly recognize someone like Law Lee. So yeah, I think I'll start to round off my notes. I think it's still very very solid and uh, and uh, it's tense and exciting. And it's nice to see all these players in in this part of their career doing quite well. And uh, some moments are quite. Uh, towards the back end are quite uh, haunting and affecting where we're talking the scene where Chai in fact burns his old passports because um, can't use these anymore but also uh, it's a quiet moment where things are not looking up let's just say and uh, it really you know that uh, violent tone and that gritty tone and very unsentimental style you know he, he she, she doesn't push these cinematic buttons runs all the way uh, Towards the end, as the uh, as the violence escalates, and uh, there are some shocking deaths uh, across the character gallery. The, the 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 thing I found a little bit uh, quickly tied up, or the, that I didn't understand, was the connection between you know the boss that Chinfat works with and the connections he has with someone who works in politics or uh, an advisor who works with someone in politics then they meet in a church at one point and i really didn't understand nor cared too much about that connection the reason i didn't understand it is that the english dialogue is quite uh, hard to um, to pick up it's quite harshly recorded uh, quite thick accents as well the, the Laserdisc has Chinese subtitles for those scenes, but uh, it was a bit hard for me to understand the sort of grand scope of the connection between what goes on in Manila, Manila Chinatown and into the higher ranks of politics. But uh, it really didn't uh, seem like the most compelling thread here. I cared more for the, uh, the, the you know, the, the, the thread of uh, Wu Yu and the Cherry Chung character and uh, their ultimate fate. Yeah, no, I agree. I, th- I certainly. Does, I, I think the idea is to show how powerful he is, 
uh the the, the what was his name mr chung yeah his his character how powerful he is i guess in within the community or the sort of the the, the juggle the juggling that is due to to maintain his operation i suppose that's the main reason i don't i'm not yeah entirely too sure about that that plot strand either and, and even with those subtitles it really didn't come to life for you or um uh, if you were able to read those subtitles on the laserdisc uh, rip uh, of, uh, during the english uh, uh, dialogue sections yeah, I, I my mind went straight to try and listen to the english i didn't have a chance to read the chinese subtitles <laughs> Yeah, it was a little bit uh, hard to to understand and uh, quite poorly acted too as well. So it, <laughs> it wasn't stellar English dialogue, but hey, there, there, there's enough here to connect to and, and certainly uh, in an ending that isn't uh, all uh, lovey-dovey, let's just say. I still find it uh, affecting to a degree and uh, it's really neat to have a movie like this and where we went with each uh, director and performer. Out of this, I mean, uh, go, going back to Choi Hark, like uh, he made that very angry film, um, Dangerous Encounter First Kind, aka Don't Play With Fire, uh, his third film. Nasty piece of work. And the movie after was all the wrong clues. You know, so they did this switching of uh, voice and tone and uh, motivation is fascinating to me uh, especially since these new wave films still you know, speaking of that Choi Hark film a dangerous encounter first kind it's not something that you can pick up just like that and uh, that was the film that you might have heard of where he delivered a film that uh, was completely unacceptable uh, it had a subplot about uh, terrorism, terrorism. Bomb, t- terrorism yeah. yeah and so they had to edit reshoot some stuff to make it more uh, acceptable for censorship and it's really shocking when you see that there is an assembly of the uncut version using different sources. It's really shocking that, oh, dear Lord, was this the content? They go into a cinema and leave a bomb. And then all the wrong clues happened. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I got that out of his system. And, but, but Anne Hoy, as we talked of, they, they, she, uh, she, she goes where her voice uh, tells her what, what is compelling and uh, we, therefore we might get another night in fog and might get another pleasant a simple life you know because um, she, she, ha- she, she isn't on a set path it seems um, in my eyes even though I haven't followed her work extensively during the last 10-15 um, years but uh, it, seems like, it seems like her path is her own do you think that's fair to say? Well, if you watch um, Keep Rolling, I mean, she's quite honest about the period that in which, you know, she had to become sort of a journeyman director be, because she had to do work. Uh, you know, if you don't mind, can you just bring that into context? Context, uh, If I'm understanding correctly, Keep Rolling is this feature-length documentary about her life and career. Is that right? Yes, yes. It's uh, the film directed by Manim Chong, a longtime art director, um, and followed her for, I think, three years, over three years. I've done a lot of interpretation for the interviews about this film so i know the film quite well but uh, or at least i know the sort of the stories behind the film quite well but yeah it, it is in, it is included in the um the bold people uh criterion blu-ray if you want to you want to see it but yeah it's a film about that follows anhui mostly during our time will come but also includes a lot of interviews about uh her past and you see that anhui is quite honest about her career because she's had a long career and lots of ups and downs. She went from being uh, someone who's made something like Bo People, which did phenomenal at the box office, to um, quite a few flops. And essentially, she's very honest about having to do films uh, or not having been able to find work. And in fact, I think her career sort of reflects 
Hong Kong filmmakers um, need to make a living. Whereas, you know, you can't really use the Altair theory all the time on on um, on Hong Kong filmmakers because a lot of times they need to make films to make money. So, for example, uh, Trey Hark formed, co-formed uh, Cinema City to make commercial films. And so then, you know, Cinema City produced a lot of commercial films that, yes, does retain a Trey Hark style. But to say that, you know, to find some sort of common creative thread throughout Trey Hark's career, it becomes a bit hard to find a straight path you know what i mean and that's reflects sort of the realities of living in hong kong and trying to to make a living in hong kong cinema where you know a lot of people are really just trying to make a living and and even with someone like cho hack now being such a successful commercial director on the mainland may not mean that uh, th- that's going to be his career until the end of time or anything um, you know uh, he might have uh, the opportunities to make something small. I don't know uh, what his motivation is, or if it's, uh, or if it's uh, infatuated with money. So that's gonna be his motivation from now on. I don't know, but uh, it, it's interesting to see uh, uh, the development as, as we talked of. So yeah, I guess um, th- that's it. Uh, unless you had any, any other notes you wanted sh- wanted to share from your uh, from your viewing of uh, the story of Vuviet. No, I mean I found it as sort of interesting for me to complete watching Enhui's filmography, but otherwise. I don't find it to be a very intriguing or interesting um, addition to this. I am glad I saw it. I've seen it. I am glad to see the, to compare the different versions. But as for, you know, is it of the first top three or five, top five films I would recommend to anyone who's trying to discover anyway? I don't, I don't think so. No, it's, it's a bit further down the list indeed. Yeah. Uh, but it would be, would be cool if uh, it was uh, available to the masses in, in full, but uh, that's where we are right now so uh d- d- despite being this abridged uh, version the hong kong blu-ray is uh, uh, fully available i don't remember if it was region coded or not uh, that seems to vary from company to company in hong kong sometimes it's a uh, b sometimes it's abc uh, and, and i don't know what the uh, reasoning is there but uh i i, I I'm, I'm i'm set up for uh, for multi-region so i'm fine uh, and the uncut blu-ray is available as well if you don't need english subtitles so uh, we'll see uh, if this gets an extended home video life um, elsewhere, but uh, it is a little bit of a specialized uh, title after all. So, uh, so, so yeah, let's uh, finish this one off. So for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, go to podcastonfire.com. Check out all our other shows. Uh, we uh, had a little group discussion uh, earlier in the year between uh, myself, Kevin and uh, Paul Fox with a little Ashes of Time Eagle Shooting Heroes uh, double bill across two episodes so check that out uh, we had a little, had a little uh, the rest of the Wisely films uh, coverage uh, uh, last year or even uh, uh, 2020 uh, and, and since then creator Wisely has uh, sadly passed away of course uh, Nick Wang so, um, uh, so that, uh, one of the news that was uh, recently uh, seen and heard uh, but uh, check out the archive and uh, um, all the social media links are available there as well. So I'm going to leave it to you to plug whatever you like. Uh, if you want to mention the projects you've uh, worked on that we talked about at the beginning of the show or just sign off with your social media credentials. I have a couple of films that are subtitled by me out the second half of this year. So Detective vs. Sleuth, the White Car film, Detective vs. Sleuth. I'm trying to... Make sure I pronounce these names clearly. It's not, um, it's not an easy title. Not, yeah, <laughs> not for me either. Detectives versus Sleuths. Yeah, the Wyckoffite film. Um, I have Septet, 
the story of Hong Kong that's uh, out via Media Asia. I have Just One Day, the film uh, directorial debut by Erica Lee. That's out at least in Hong Kong on Disney Plus. I'm not sure about elsewhere. Um, I have uh, Table for Six, which is the formerly Lunar New Year co- uh, comedy. Now it's a mid-autumn comedy that's directed by Sunny Chan, starring Dale Wong. Be, be, and 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 pardon me because there was no Lunar New Year cinematic season in 2022. Or... Yeah, because uh, the cinemas were shut down because of the sixth wave of COVID. So yeah, we didn't have a Lunar New Year films this year. All the two local Lunar New Year films were both delayed. Uh, Chili Lab Story came out in July, and then now Table for Six is coming out in September. And because Hong Kong film release dates are tend to be quite late, so I have no idea what I'm coming, what I have done is coming out by the time this show goes out but those are the four films that i know that are out at this point in time cool my friend thank you very much for taking the time i really appreciate it kevin and uh this was to act as a little giant fat uh, assassin for hire double bill with another film but uh, we needed to split them up into two episodes to uh, be kind to the listeners and uh, have a little bit, <laughs> bit more lean running time so um uh, but uh, i'm very appreciative of um you taking the time kevin so hope uh, hope we get to do it again and find uh, something uh, something suitable in the future here so yeah thanks very much for having me on I'm, I'm always happy to be on the show excellent thank you very much well that's us so let's sign off i've been kenny b and uh, with me was kevin ma of the east screen west screen podcast and multiple plot summaries and subtitles as you've as you've just heard so check out detective uh, versus loofs when it does hit you yeah, 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 yeah.